Good morning. Last week, we studied the first six verses of Isaiah 63, as we uh, have been working through this book of Isaiah. And the beginning of chapter 63 paints for us a sobering and unpleasant picture of the final judgment. The scene is one of gruesome carnage, where the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords does battle against all his enemies, and he crushes every opposition to his rule. The message of that passage was that unless you get spattered with Jesus' blood shed when he was executed on a Roman cross, he will get spattered with your blood when he crushes you. You must believe that the blood of Jesus is the only possible payment for your sin. and You therefore love and trust Jesus to be your only hope of life and rescue. This is what I mean by being spattered with his blood. His blood splashes on you, covering you, and making you acceptable before his Father. And those who try to present themselves to God without having been paid for by the blood of Jesus will have their own lifeblood forcibly removed from them for eternity. This gruesome message is an unpopular one because it demands an accounting that we cannot pay. It requires a satisfaction that we cannot offer. Yet it ought to leave us with a desperate question. Will I be found among those covered with Jesus' blood? Since my only hope is not from myself, but it is derived from the compassionate love of my Lord to shed his blood for me, is there any chance that he might withhold that love from me? What about the patterns of sin and the rebellious choices I continue to make? What about the ruin and the devastation in my life caused by my past choices? What about the violations I've suffered at the hands of others? And what about all those complex factors that have made me who I am and have led me to say and think and do all kinds of things I know I shouldn't? Will these things disqualify me? How can I attach myself to Jesus Christ in such a way that I won't ever miss out on his steadfast love? These are the questions Isaiah takes up in his next poem, which we look at today. Please know, friends, that your only hope to escape the coming judgment is for Yahweh to remember his steadfast love from ages past. And he invites you to ask him to remember that love, even as you confess your sin to him. And so this morning, we will recount his love, we will remember the past, and we will appeal for the future. Let me pray, and we'll dive into the text. Father, please help us to remember who
who you are and who you have promised to be based on how you have acted in the past as a God of steadfast love. May we bring our appeal to you to continue in that love into the future. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah's poem that we look at this week begins with a statement of the poem's purpose. As we recount his love in verse 7 of chapter 63. I will recount the steadfast love of Yahweh, the praises of Yahweh, according to all that Yahweh has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So this whole passage that we're looking at today, the stated purpose of this poem in this verse is to recount the steadfast love of Yahweh. Remember, that's what the word Lord in all capital letters is. It's God's personal name, Yahweh. That phrase, steadfast love, occurs in both the first line and the last line of this verse. It translates a single Hebrew word, which is one of the most important words in the Old Testament. Steadfast love. It's the word that God uses whenever he describes his committed and eternal love for his people. In the book of Exodus, Yahweh appears to Moses on a mountaintop and he declares himself to be Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This steadfast love is a foundational part of God's identity. This same word is used in many psalms to describe the most praiseworthy trait of Yahweh's character. Psalm 136 even repeats the word 26 times. Uh, Along the lines of, Give thanks to Yahweh, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever. And 26 times it says, his steadfast love endures forever. So here in Isaiah, this is no random word choice. In this poem, Isaiah wants to celebrate that which makes Yahweh the God of gods. That which makes him different from any other God. Isaiah says, this steadfast love is worthy of praise. It is the expression of God's goodness to the house of Israel, and it is a manifestation of his abundant compassion. Isaiah was the forerunner, you see, of Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who in her sonnet 43 penned the infamous words, How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. Except, of course, here Isaiah is not recounting the ways of his own love, but those of Yahweh, the only wise God who steadfastly loves his people Israel. And Isaiah asks, how does he love us? Let us count the ways. Now, since this passage follows immediately on the heels of the end time massacre of the enemies of Jesus Christ, in the verses right before this, your application is this. Know that your only hope to escape that coming massacre is for God to extend his steadfast love toward you. 
There is no other way out. Will his love be steadfast enough to extend to me? Or will he withhold this love from me so that I perish? These are the key questions we must take into the rest of the poem, which has two main sections. First, we must remember the past, and then we may appeal for the future. So let's move on to remember the past. In verses 8 through 14, Isaiah recounts the history of God's steadfast love toward Israel. Let's read verses 8 through 14. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But... They rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of the flock? Where is he? who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths. Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of Yahweh gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. This brief history of Yahweh's steadfast love toward Israel in these verses has three movements. The first movement is in verses 8 and 9, which describe God as their Savior. He chooses to become their Savior. He enters in and shares in their suffering, their bondage in Egypt. He saves them by his angel. He redeems them, which means he pays for them with his love, in his love and his pity. So in the first movement, God is their savior. The second movement is in verse 10, which describes God, their enemy. They rebelled and grieved him, so he turned into their enemy and had to fight against them. And this refers to the many rebellions of Israel and the many rejections of Yahweh as their only God. The second, in the second movement, God is their enemy. And in the third movement of this history, verses 11 to 14, it describes the God who remembers. So he starts out as their savior and then he turns to become their enemy, but then God remembers. He remembers the old days. Verse 11 And in particular, he remembers Moses and his people. Moses was the appointed mediator of whom God approved. And from the end of verse 11 to the beginning of verse 13, Isaiah asks a series of rhetorical questions. Where did he go? And this is almost God remembering about himself. Where did did he go? Where is the God who did all these tremendous things? 
And Isaiah counts all the ways of his love. He recounts the deliverance through the sea and granting the leaders his Holy Spirit and rescuing them with his mighty arm of salvation and dividing the waters and leading them on dry ground. Even as Isaiah is describing Yahweh as the one who remembers the old days, verse 11, Isaiah himself goes back through the memories of what it was like when God's love was steadfast toward these people. Verse 14, we see all of it was to make for Yahweh a glorious name. To show the world that he alone was God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The point of this poem is that God might turn against his people for a season when they rebel, but he will remember his steadfast love he will remember the olden days when he was a savior and not just an enemy he will turn back even as his people themselves remember his work as savior let me illustrate what this looks like in our home we have a fireproof safe where we keep not only our important legal papers But also we keep a bundle of uh, the love letters that Aaron and I wrote to each other while we were dating and engaged. And if we happen to be having a really bad day or a difficult season in our relationship with lots of conflict and misunderstanding, I can open that safe and pull out those letters to remember a time when we were young and in love. And this reminds me that we were not always enemies and that we have pledged to endure through better or worse for richer or poorer in sickness and in health. And as I remember those things, I can situate any existing conflict within the all-important context of the history and the commitment of this man and this woman one to another. This gives me a crucial perspective that empowers me to stand fast and then to let down my guard once again with this precious sister and bride of mine. Friends, in the same way, here is your application. Remember God's love from the past. Remember God's love from the past. Remember how God treats rebels. He will not give up on them forever. If they once again draw near to God, he will draw near to them. All you must do is remember what it was like in the good old days. This is why we keep reading the Bible over and over and over again. It's not a bad idea to try to read the entire thing once each year. And then you start over and you do it again. And you do it again. And you do it again. Because it reminds you of God's steadfast love. Because as you remember how God chose to be a savior to his people, that he has not always been an enemy, and he will not always be an enemy, you just may pluck up the courage to ask God likewise to remember and therefore to act on his steadfast love.
And that is exactly what Isaiah turns to do in the rest of this poem. He asks God to remember as he now appeals for the future from verse 15 to the end of chapter 64. Now, though I've read the book of Isaiah many times in my life. I try to read the Bible at least once a year. I've never studied this passage. I've never studied the book of Isaiah very carefully until we decided to preach on it as a, as a church this year. And I'm so glad we did for many reasons, one of which is because right here, what, what I'm about to read, I have found is one of the most beautiful prayers of repentance that I never even realized was in the Bible. I read it, but I didn't understand what was going on. And I've been praying for you that this text would shape us and teach us how to turn back to our God in seasons when we feel deeply our unworthiness. Let me read this to you. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Yahweh, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. O Yahweh, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. To make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old... No one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of of our iniquities. But now, O Yahweh, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. 
Be not so terribly angry, O Yahweh, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Yahweh? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? As my son Benaiah said this morning when I read this to my children, what a dark place to end. But the essence of this prayer lies at the beginning and the end of it. The rest of the stuff in the middle is there to support the main points on the outside. So let me explain this. Verse 15 of chapter 63 has the complaint, the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. And then chapter 12, sorry, verse 12 of chapter 64 issues the corresponding request. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Yahweh? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Now the Hebrew makes the, the, the comparison crystal clear because the, between these two verses. Because the word in 63.15 translated as held back, your, the stirring of your parts and your compassion are held back from me. And the word in 64 verse 12 translated as restrain yourself are the same word. I wish the translators had translated them the same so we could see the repetition. You have restrained your compassion. Will you continue restraining yourself? That's the poem's main idea. And it's the prayer's chief request. Will you restrain or will you withhold your steadfast love, which we've been recounting? Will you continue doing this? That thing I decided to recount in verse 7 of 63, that which we recited from the history in verses 8 to 14, it's that which is currently being withheld from us. Will you withhold it forever? That's the point of this prayer. There is no way we can get through the coming judgment without it. There is no way we can survive another minute without it. There is no way we can even see our God, this incomparable and unique God, unless he saves us from our sins out of the stirring of his inner parts, the compassion of his heart, and the remembering of his steadfast love toward us. Now let me point out another aspect of the outer frame, the beginning and the ending. In 63 verse 15, Isaiah asks God to look down from his holy and beautiful habitation. Look down from your holy and beautiful habitation. And then in 64 verse 9, he asks God once again to look. But now he specifies the object. What does he want God to look at? Your people. Look at your people. We are all your people. And in verse 11, he draws God's attention to their holy and beautiful house. 
which has been burned with fire and now sits in ruins. Essentially, Isaiah begs God to look down from his holy and beautiful heavenly home and to see his people who are his holy and beautiful earthly home, which is no longer either holy, that is special, or particularly beautiful. The uniqueness and beauty of God's temple in heaven ought to be replicated on earth, but this is not currently the case for these people. All through this prayer of Isaiah's, we see the foretaste of what we call the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray when they asked him how to pray. Because in Isaiah, we see all kinds of things here. Uh, I haven't gotten to this yet, but we see throughout the prayer the declaration that God is our Father who is in heaven in 63.16 and 64.8. But we also see here in the outer frame Isaiah asking God to grant that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Take that holiness and beauty in heaven and please make it be done on earth as well. But note that all of this is based on nothing more than God's glorious character and the hope that he will no longer restrain himself, hold himself back, but remember his steadfast love toward his unworthy people. Therefore, in the middle parts of the prayer, everything else between that frame, we see a dual thesis. We see first that Yahweh is infinitely unique and worthy. And we see second that we, his people, are astoundingly defiled and unworthy. These two theses track through the middle part of the prayer as support for God to, our only hope is for you to remember your love for us. You are supremely worthy and we are astoundingly unworthy. Let me walk this through. Starting in 63, verse 16, we see the first thesis. You are our Father, our Redeemer from of old. But though Isaiah declares Isaiah to be our Father, he quickly goes into his second thesis, adding that if, if Abraham and Israel, the nation's founding fathers, if they could hop into a time machine and jump into our day, they might not even recognize us as their descendants. They don't even know us anymore. We are so much different than they ever expected. We are unworthy of their hopes and dreams. In verse 17, he asks God, he asks why God makes us wander and why he hardens our hearts so that we don't fear him. The point here is not that God is in any way responsible for his people's sin. The point here is that God has handed them over to their sin. He's hardened their hearts to to give them what they wanted, and now they are truly stuck. The New Testament makes this same point in Romans chapter 1. And the point is that, friends, you can't dabble in a little sin under the impression that God will forgive you for it anyway, because God will harden you. He will hand you over to it, and then it will master you, wrecking your life, and stealing your joy. And then you will be stuck wondering how on earth this ever could have happened to you. 
In verse 1 of chapter 64, he goes back to his first thesis, that God is supremely worthy. Isaiah wishes that God would just rip open the fabric of heaven like a stage curtain in the theater so that he could come out and come down to earth to bring his kingdom, to make his will done on earth as it is in heaven, to fix everything and to make it right. Because then in verse 2, his name would become known to his adversaries and the mountains would tremble and the seas would roll back as they did in the past. In verse 4, he claims that there is no God like this God. No one has ever seen a God like this who acts for those who wait for him. You see, that's all God expects is that we would wait for him. That we would set our hope fully on him and never on ourselves to rescue us and make things right. In verse 5, God wants us simply to remember him in his ways because then he will meet us. And Isaiah longs desperately that it would be so. But then Isaiah shifts once again to his second thesis, further statements about the people's astounding unworthiness. In verse 5, he says, we've been in our sins a long time. Can we even be saved anymore? In verse 6, he says, we are as unclean as a used menstrual cloth. That's what the polluted garment means in the Hebrew. It's a disgusting image he's trying to make. In verse 7, he says, nobody calls on your name or rouses himself to take hold of you. Now in verse 6, this is fascinating to me. In the Hebrew, the all falls at the end of each sentence like forceful punctuation. What he's saying, if I translated it woodenly, it would be something like, we have become like one who is unclean, all of us. We fade like a leaf, all of us. But then this same punctuation is then repeated and complemented in verses 8 and 9 in the hope that their degradation can, in fact, turn around. We are the work of your hand, all of us. Behold, please look, we are your people, all of us. Verse 9 illumines a critical crossroads for us. Be not so terribly angry, O Yahweh, and remember not iniquity forever. You see, Yahweh will always remember something. Either he remembers his steadfast love toward you, or he remembers your iniquity, that is, your defilement, forever. If you don't yet know Jesus, I beg of you to make this your prayer, even today. God, please don't remember my iniquity forever. Please, don't hold my sin against me. Please, don't withhold your steadfast love. My life is yours. I am the clay. You are the potter. So at the end of verse, at the end of the prayer, Isaiah makes his chief request. Verse 12, will you restrain yourself at these things, O Yahweh? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? See, in these chapters, Isaiah is teaching us to pray 
like children. He's teaching us to receive God's kingdom like little children. Because when my children are despairing and in conflict, Aaron and I try to train them not to take matters into their own hands, not to argue or fight back when they suffer, not to unleash their envy and their rivalry against one another. We want them instead to make an appeal to us as their parents to help. What they need most in those circumstances when they're having the hardest time, what they need is for fatherly compassion to descend upon them from on high. They need a father who's not going to sit around reading his book or working on his laptop and ignoring them. They need a father who will get involved, who will not restrain or withhold his steadfast love for them, a father who will step down, enter in, and work out his loving and compassionate purposes among them. This is how Isaiah is teaching us to appeal to our Father in heaven. How does this apply? Beg God to continue his compassion into the future. After you've remembered his steadfast love from the past, you now beg him to continue that compassion into the future. Please don't be afraid to ask him. It pleases God when we pray for him to act without restraint, to have his way with us, to unleash his steadfast love. So ask him, just as Jesus commanded you to ask him, for his name to be treated with utmost reverence, for his kingdom to come from heaven to earth, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Remember this God and the steadfast love he has shown in the past and then badger him to continue showing such steadfast love into the future. If you do this daily, hourly, weekly, over and over again, you just may find him to be the most compassionate father you could ever imagine. One more application for you. For our church, we're about to ordain Dan Miller to the office of elder at the end of this sermon. While you're praying for God not to withhold his steadfast love, please also thank God for Dan, who will constantly remind us of God's steadfast love for us. And please ask God for more leaders like Dan, those who will constantly remind us of God's steadfast love for us, because we are so prone to forget this about his character. And this is when we get ourselves in trouble, when we forget that our God is a God of steadfast love. And Dan does such a great job keeping God's steadfast love in the forefront of our attention. We need more leaders like him who are willing to ask God to remember his compassion and no longer restrain himself from showing steadfast love. So in conclusion, let me just mention that there are times when our feelings 
and our experience often leads us to believe that God has, in fact, withheld his steadfast love from us. And, and friends, at that time, at those times, the most important thing to remind ourselves of is that these feelings that he's withheld himself are the furthest thing from the truth. For Isaiah, this was a real concern. Israel's relationship with her God had the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. But friends, now that you and I live after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fact of the matter is that we who believe can never actually be separated from God's steadfast love. Will God ever withhold his steadfast love from us? For Isaiah, it will be answered initially in the next chapter, which we'll get to next week. But Isaiah's prayer was finally answered by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, who said, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword... I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as we recount God's love, as we remember the past, and as we appeal for the future, we might wonder, will God withhold his steadfast love? Never again for those who are in Jesus. Let's pray. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Yahweh, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. O Yahweh, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, Lord Jesus, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you, Jesus, who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. 
in our sins, we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We fade like a leaf, all of us, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Yahweh, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Yahweh, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are your people, all of us. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you Restrain yourself at these things, O Yahweh. Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? No. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Jesus Christ who loved us. And neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. And this is our hope, Lord. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from your love in Christ Jesus. You are our Lord. Amen.